Welcome to Bite Size Human Geography, a podcast meant for students, their parents, and anyone who wants a better understanding of the world. We investigate global issues using human geography concepts. It's human geography made simple. Hello and welcome. My name is Kara Smart, and I am so happy that we're with each other here today. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the relationship between development levels in countries, education levels in those countries, and food production. And we're going to have a specific focus on the differences between commercial and subsistence farming and how that has an impact on the type of food that is produced and consumed in a country. So in the class that I teach human geography, one of my favorite units is a unit called uh, agriculture, agriculture and rural land use. And I love this unit, not just because I love food. I love cooking food. I love watching food shows. I love, um, you know, going out to eat and spending that time with my family. But because food is something that we all have a connection to. And so most kids don't tend to think about agriculture being a part of geography, but it's actually one of the most important parts of geography because we all have to eat. So I like to start off with my students by kind of getting them to think about their favorite meal and uh, kind of reminiscing about meals that they've had with family members or friends. And you could always see, you know, whenever we start these conversations, kids smile and they, you know, they love to talk about my favorite, you know, I had pho here, or I had these tacos here. And it's just these great memories that get brought up. And so I like to talk about how food is, is, a, is a process, is an experience that involves all of our senses. It's not just taste and smell. But, you know, because think about this. With food, not only do we have these memories, but we use all of our senses. We start actually by looking at it first. We look at food, we see the colors of the food, and then maybe we might hear the sizzle of like bacon or onions frying in a pan, or maybe the crunch of a cookie, or maybe opening up. Like when my kids were little, I always knew that they were getting into the pantry because you could hear the bags of chips and goldfish crackers opening up the crinkle of that. And you know, then you can smell it and uh, touch it, and then eventually you end up tasting the food. But eating and, and food involves all of our senses. But, you know, I often wonder and I tend to think that because we we get so involved in those aspects of food that we've actually forgotten about where our food comes from. And we're so removed in developed countries from, from our food supply. I love to ask my students, you know, do any of you guys garden? Do you like to, you know, to, to help cook food at home? And so many of my students have never cooked a full meal with their families You know, they're afraid to use things like knives in the kitchen. They're afraid, you know, they're not quite sure how to put things together. And so we have these great conversations about how it's okay to experiment with food. And, you know, I love to tell them about all the food failures that I had over the years, especially when I was younger. But these are all common experiences that we have in and around food. There's a video that I love to show my students at the beginning of the year that has interviews with astronauts. And so they the, the interviewer asked the astronauts, you know, what are your impressions of the planet from space? And one of the astronauts says, you know, the one thing that you, you think about, you know, you've seen the blue marble images and, you know, we know that the earth is 70% water and the ecumen or, or the habitable portions of the planet where we live, it's... Um, you know, we live on about 2% of the Earth's surface, 30% of the the Earth's surface are deserts. Uh, But what this astronaut says is it's amazing to me how much of the planet is actually brown, you know, the the desert-like conditions, those conditions where you can't grow food. Uh, But on the places where we can grow food, which is not as much space as what you think it is, those the, the types of food that we eat varies by our climate. And depending upon where you are in the world, 
and how many people are involved in food production, the food that you eat could be drastically different just based upon a few simple items. There's a term that we use in uh, geography called agricultural density. And this is a measure of the number of farmers per arable land. And what it tells you is, is the number of people that are involved, the number of farmers that are involved in food production in a given country. And so it, it tells you actually more than anything else about the development of the region. So for instance, the higher the agricultural density of the region, the less developed a country is because you have less technology. And so you need more people to bring in the harvest. But it also tells you that you have lower education levels across the board. You don't have time for school. You don't have the, the, the blessing of being able to go to school if you're young or even if you're older because you have to spend your entire day either getting water or uh, taking, you know, getting, bringing in the harvest. And so school is a luxury that you can't afford. On the opposite end of the spectrum, a lower agricultural density tells you that a region is much more highly developed. They do have more technology. They employ things like geographic information systems, GIS. They have uh, amazing machines that can help bring in the harvest, all kinds of high tech stuff. And so fewer people are needed to bring in the harvest. So they do have the luxury of being able to go out and go to school and, you know, leave the family farms and go to the city and go get an education uh, outside of agriculture. And so it's a completely different outlook on food production, which leads to a completely different uh, end result with regards to development. So for comparisons for you, in the United States, uh, only about 2 to 3% of us are directly involved in agricultural production. Whereas if you look at countries like India and China and most sub-Saharan African countries, you have over 60% of the people in those countries that are involved in agricultural production. So once again, this is directly linked. Uh, it's, it's kind of this feedback loop where you have lower education levels, but you also have more people involved in agricultural production, which leads to lower education levels. And so it's kind of this vicious circle or this loop that's just really challenging for so many of our LDCs across the planet, lesser developed countries across the planet to break out of. All right, so why don't we look, dig a little deeper now and look at the differences in food production between high and low agricultural density countries, or you could even put it as more developed and less developed countries. So I want you to visualize a farmer. So, well, if you're not, not if you're driving, but I was going to say close your eyes uh, if you're not driving. And I want you to kind of look in your mind's eye and think about, you know, when I say the word farmer, what comes to mind? Uh, probably if you're like most people, at least in the United States, uh, maybe in Canada and some other uh, more developed countries or MDCs, you probably are visualizing a male. Uh, maybe they're wearing overalls or some kind of cap or uh, hat, something along those lines. Um, and that, that's because pop culture tells you that this is what a farmer is. And probably this is how you visualized a farmer, maybe from commercials or something along those lines. But you would, would you be surprised if I told you that the typical farmer on the planet is actually not that, does not look like that. The typical farmer on the planet is actually a woman. Uh, and even more than that, uh, it's a, a mama. Uh, and throughout the planet, the majority of farmers on the planet are women. And I'm going to kind of delve into that in just a minute. So I want to start first with our high agricultural density countries. Okay, so remember, these are going to be our countries that are typically lesser developed countries. Uh, they employ a practice called subsistence farming. 
And uh, more people are fed by this type of agriculture, this type of farming than anything else on the planet. Uh, and this is where you're providing just enough food to feed your family. Uh, maybe, maybe you have enough to go trade at the local market for. Um, but for the most part, you're farming just enough to survive. And I want you to think about the role of women in these lesser developed countries. As you know, women don't necessarily have the same rights that we enjoy in MDCs. In many, many countries, they can't vote. In many countries, they cannot own land um, or any type of property that they have is actually their husband's property or if they're not married, uh, maybe it goes to the, you know, the closest male relative. And so think about this. If you're a farmer and you're female, you don't have the ability to be able to own your own land, to get loans to buy any type of equipment that you need or fertilizers that you need or seeds that you need. So your status is really unchanging and it's one of, of stagnation and total frustration because you just can't see a way out of your existence. So when you're looking at uh, subsistence farming, most subsistence farmers, or a lot of subsistence farmers, I should say, use a practice called shifting cultivation. A lot of you may know this uh, by the term slash and burn. Maybe you learned about this in your science classes. Uh, it's not the same as letting a field lay fallow, which you might have learned in your history classes. What slash and burn does is you, you have a parcel of land. And typically this is a parcel of land that's not meant to grow agriculture. So think about uh, a place like Brazil when we talk about the Amazonian rainforest. Classic example of this actually. So you have the rainforest, and in the rainforest you have trees, right, that have grown there for millennia. And they are not, in, in this particular region, the soil is not meant to grow crops. So what happens is, is people come in and they chop down the trees and they sell the trees for um, a great price. And so they're able to bring money into their family for that, for that alone, just for the sale of the trees. And then... Uh, after they sell the trees, they uh, burn the land where the trees were, the root stumps, everything else. And of course, if you learned this in your science class, I'm sure you did. By burning the, those trees, you're imparting nutrients into the soil because that soil, remember, it was meant to grow trees. It wasn't necessarily meant to grow corn or sugarcane or anything else. So after you burn uh, this, the leftover um, remnants, I guess, from cutting down the trees, then you begin to grow your food. And maybe for a couple of years, it works for you. But over time, that soil loses its fertility because remember, it's not meant, it's not meant to be cropland. It's meant to grow uh, trees in the rainforest. And so because that uh, soil becomes less fertile, then what the farmers do is they shift. They move to another parcel of land and they do to go through the same process. They'll chop down the trees, they'll burn the remnants, that injects nutrients into the soil. And then after a, a few more years, that soil becomes uh, less fertile. And so they have to shift again. Over the process of many growing seasons, the end result is you end up with an area that's called desertified or desertification, which is basically an area that over time becomes desert-like. And this is a huge problem on the planet. If you were to have a computer in front of you right now and Google image search desertification across the planet, or maybe just even global desertification, what you'll see is that this is a growing concern where areas that were uh, croplands for a time now are incapable of growing anything you, either because the soil is bad or because the water sources resources have been depleted which is a whole other issue altogether and so really the only way for these issues to be solved is for uh, organizations to come in non-governmental organizations or ngos come in from outside of these lesser developed countries and they offer training classes and and really kind of offer best farming practices 
to teach people how to properly conserve water, to how to uh, properly treat the soil so that you don't end up with areas that are desertified. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, let's talk about our lower agricultural density uh, regions or countries. This is would be the hallmark of commercial farming. This is farming that basically takes the whole concept of you know, the Fordist method of production being very efficient and has taken it to our farming sector. There's very little waste. It's very highly technical, tons of schooling and education involved. This is not just planting something in the ground and, you know, making sure that it grows if you water it and, you know, you watch it and you throw some fertilizer on it and it's all great to go. This is the business uh, aspect of food production Uh, And of course, it's super high tech. It's not just things like drones. I'm sure you've seen drones in agriculture before. It's also using geographic information systems or GIS, things like vertical farming, which is super, super cool. You can see these on the east side of uh, Houston and actually outside of all major cities now where you're growing up. Uh, so several levels up, uh, so almost like in a high rise growing up instead of out. And they use really cool lighting to make this happen. And, and this is the type of farming that's beginning to occur. It's providing food for school lunches and for restaurants in the area. But these are all uh, inventions and hallmarks of commercial farming. Family farming, as we know it in countries around in, in regions around the United States, I don't want to say it's a dying entity, but it it kind of is. You have mostly agribusiness now that are running, that's pretty much running the show of commercial farming in MDCs. And the relationship with farmers uh, and these large multinational corporations uh, who basically own all of the layers of production of the agricultural process. And these would be countries like, or companies like Archer Daniels Midland or Cargill or Nestle. I'm sure many of you know Nestle, uh, ConAgra, big, big companies, multi, multi-million dollar or billion dollar companies that are involved in this. They have really strict guidelines. They're highly regulated because, of course, these countries regulate agricultural production You have to buy their seeds and buy their chemicals to be involved in the farming process. So uh, when I talk about, you know, this is the businessification of, I'm trying to say that fast a couple of times, of food production, that's exactly what we're looking at here. The term we like to use in geography is called vertical integration. And what vertical integration says is basically these companies own, own everything from STEM to plate. And all along the production line, these companies are uh, control everything. Something else that you really associate with uh, MDCs and commercial farming is this concept of monoculture. Monoculture, and remember, our our food production in MDCs is highly efficient. And so you're producing one item or maybe two items, and that's it because you want the most bang for your buck. The problem with this is this is not how nature works acts in nature, I guess. And uh, normally when you're looking at food and agricultural process, you have these relationships, these symbiotic relationships between animals and the the waste product that they produce and the food that's being produced on the farm surrounding it. But in in a monoculture system, you have the separation of the crops being grown in the animal production, which is why you need more and more chemical fertilizers and things like that. Uh, so there's that issue. And then there's, of course, genetic modification, which is always a hot ticket item uh, to discuss. People feel very strongly about this on one way or the other. Uh, but these are all issues that come up with regards to commercial farming. Uh, there have been some responses to commercial farming in MDCs. There have been some 
really some movements to try and eat local, eat in season. We don't necessarily want to have watermelon at Christmas time because first of all, it tastes terrible because it's not meant to grow at Christmas time. Uh, if you're eating watermelon at Christmas time, it's coming from someplace across the planet, which means it has to be shipped via plane or something else to get to you, which burns a ton of fossil fuels. So that's not necessarily a great thing for the planet either. Uh, so there's this, this eat local food movement. There's this thought of trying to not use genetic modification. You're probably beginning to see it if you look at some of the items that you purchase for yourself at the store. Look at your tortilla chips. Look at your cereal. I'm sure they're beginning to, to, to you're going to be getting to see the labels on there of non-GMOs uh, or no chemicals or all natural, all these other items to try to appeal to you as a consumer to be closer to your food. There are some really, really great videos out there and documentaries out there. One of my favorites that I can highly recommend to you is by a gentleman named Michael Pollan. And he has a whole series of books like The Omnivore's Dilemma, the, uh, many, many others cooked. He has a great series on Netflix uh, by that same name called Cooked, where he looks at different items of food production and really, really awesome food for thought. No pun intended there, uh, but I highly recommend you check that out. I'm going to leave you with one more item to think about before we close out today to, to really illustrate the differences between food production and MDCs and LDCs, uh, which has to do with food waste. In LDCs, about 30% of raw food rots before it can make it to any market. Uh, in MDCs, in more developed countries, about 50% of our food is thrown out at the point of consumption, meaning it's never eaten in your home or in a restaurant. It's just pitched. And think about all the waste involved in both of those, the water waste, the chemical waste, uh, you know, pollution in the landfills and MDCs. It's really a tragedy. It ends up being about $1 trillion worth of food loss every single year across the planet. And so I want you to have a little experiment, a little mental experiment for yourself. I want you to think about the food in your fridge right now, uh, especially if you have some dairy or maybe some eggs, something that has a label on it, maybe some yogurt that has an expiration date on there. Do you use your senses to determine whether or not something is still good in your fridge. Do you look at the, do you say, oh, you know what, let me open up this, this little jug of milk and let me smell it, or better yet, let me taste it and see if it tastes bad. Or do you just toss it in the trash if the expiration date is there and it says, oh, it's, you know, May 5th, that's the expiration date, it's May 6th, I gotta pitch it, it's terrible. So I'm gonna challenge you <laughs> to go old fashioned here and to use your senses smell the milk, smell the yogurt, open it up and see if it's still good. Because the reality is it probably is still good. Those expiration dates that are located on your food, guys, for the most part, they're just suggestions for you. Very rarely is there a little ticking time bomb in that food that as soon as the expiration date hits, we know that it's bad. For the most part, it's a suggestion for you. And you should absolutely use your five senses to determine whether or not you need to get rid of it. Now, I'm not saying get sick on milk, okay? I'm not saying that at all. But use your senses, smell. You'll know right away. If something's rotten, you, your, your, your sniffer, your nose will tell you that it's no good. So if you just make this one little change, think about the impact that you can have on not throwing out that food and contributing to the food waste problem. Well, I'm looking at the clock and I realize, sadly, we are out of time for today. It was so good having you here to discuss these issues. Be sure to come back next time when we dispel the myth of overpopulation using the demographic transition model. 
please click subscribe to support this podcast and to get all of the latest updates as they happen. Feel free to email me at bitesizehumangeo at gmail.com with any questions that you'd like answered. This is your show as much as mine. Have a great day.